Uh, welcome, obviously, to all of our guests. We're so glad to have guests with us today. And for all those online, the online host today is uh, Gay Durst. So we've got a picture of Gay that we're going to show. So if you're online, say happy fourth, type in happy fourth uh, to her and uh, get the conversation going that way. And of course, it's good to see everyone in person today. And let's just give everyone who's serving today a big thank you, big hand for the worship team. Audiovisual welcome team. Thank you, everybody who's serving today. We are in week two of God of Justice, this series that we're doing. Last week, we started with the ethics of God. And if you missed that, it's on our YouTube channel and uh, on uh, iTunes podcast. I would really encourage you to catch up with that. It's got some foundational ideas and concepts in there, some foundational biblical truth in there that's going to help kind of steer us through the rest of the series. Um, and we'll be doing the ethics of biology today. Uh, we'll be, there is a PG-13 warning on today's uh, sermon. Then uh, next week, we'll be doing the ethics of force. And then finally, the ethics of race. So we're doing this series because there's a lot of confusion and a lot of disagreement, not just amongst Christians about the issue of justice, but in our world in, at large, in our culture. Lots of different ideas, and we need to get clarity so that we know how to do God's justice properly in the world. We know that it's an important thing, so we want to get it right. Three ground rules that I want to remind us of that I set last week, because as we talk about these things, I'm anticipating questions. already had questions from last week. Um, I'm anticipating more questions as we go through this week by week. Uh, in our small groups, there may be more questions that come up. People might be talking amongst themselves about this, and I, we really encourage that. We want people talking and questions to come forward. So three ground rules to kind of help govern our conversations are, one is, it's okay to disagree. We've got to remember that. We've got to be more comfortable with being in relationship with people who have different ideas, different conclusions about it. But also, number two is we're all learning. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong about something. Maybe I changed my mind about something. Maybe you change your mind about something. Maybe as we talk, we figure we get closer to understanding uh, the Bible's uh, truth about this, about these topics. Um, and then thirdly, uh, we want to share grace with each other, and that's the most important thing, how we talk to each other about this really matters, that we can do that well, and we can show the world that we don't do it like the world does it, that we don't treat each other like the world does, uh, but we, we treat each other like Jesus treats us. So last week, we, we learned that um, because the world's ethics are, um, they're not on a firm foundation, the Christian ethics come from God's Word, they're on a firm foundation, worldly ethics are subjective, and so therefore, because justice is built upon a moral framework, uh, the world's justice will look different to Christian justice. We, we, we will end up in a different place many times, not all the time, sometimes there'll be alignment, but we shouldn't be surprised that our understanding of justice is different to the world's understanding of it because of the foundation being different. We defined biblical justice as being this idea of the fair retribution for wrongdoing towards a wrongdoer. They get fair retribution, and then somebody who has been wronged, they get fair uh, restitution or fair restoration. They get fair uh, compensation somehow. But that's what those two sides comprise biblical justice. Um, today we'll be doing, as I said, the ethics of biology. And what I mean by that is we're going to be looking at issues of healthcare suffering, and a couple of minor topics like suicide, euthanasia, and abortion, just to name. Uh, somebody at some point a while ago thought it'd be a really good idea to put all these controversial, difficult topics in one sermon and then leave me to do it. So that's what's happening today. So let's, let's pray and then let's read. We're going to be in Psalm 
139, verse, starting verse 13. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help today. Um, we want to do the justice that you've called us to do on the earth. Um, we want there to be fair uh, retribution and fair restoration uh, for injustice. And God, we pray you'd help us to live that out, help us to understand that. Um, and today, help us to grapple with these kind of heavy topics, and, but that we would, find, um, we would find freedom as we look into it. God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is God's word. We live in a, a culture that is... Uh, very sensitive, very fragile. Um, we, are, um, we don't know how to deal with our pain and our trauma. We're, we're overly medicated. Um, we, we live in one of the most advanced civilizations ever to exist, but we're exhausted. We feel awful. Um, we've, we, we, our, our, we've got bad nutrition. We're, we're uh, sedentary a lot of times, and we're just not in a good place. We're spiritually and physically sick, and we're fragile about issues relating to our health and our safety. So life without God, if you don't believe in a God who's looking out for you, who cares for you, has your best interest at heart, who can uh, redeem the terrible things that happen to you and can uh, give you hope in the midst of those things and give you a promise for eternal security, if you don't have that, then life without God kind of can cause you to have to kind of live in a bit of a bubble, to create a protection of, uh, a, la a layer of protection around yourself where uh, you're very fearful about how fragile life is because it can, you have to control everything because it can be snatched away. If this life is all that matters and your, your um, personal well-being, a personal happiness is the most important thing in the universe, then um, you can live pretty insecure, pretty fragile um, and, and uh, live in this kind of layer of trying to control life, living in this bubble of protection. And because of that, because of we've lost God in our culture and we're, we're really the fastest growing religion that we have in our culture right now is kind of political activism. And so the government has taken the role of God. We talk about that quite a bit because it's a real thing that's really important. It's happening right in front of our eyes. Because of that, now you'll, you, maybe you said this or you've heard people say this, that healthcare should be a human right or is a human right. Maybe you said that, maybe you've heard that, maybe you've thought that. And it's a difficult topic to actually, there's lots of layers to this, difficult topic to talk about. I think what younger Americans mean when they say that is that the government has an obligation, has a moral obligation to provide equal health care for everybody. We face a few problems, though, in understanding this, is that we all have a different definition of the value of life and what life actually means. We're very disconnected, and sometimes we, 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 we overvalue life in ways that are surprising, we undervalue it in ways that are, are surprising, but also we have an incompatible understanding of definitions of what health care really means. Are we talking about emergency health? Are we talking about doctor's visits? Are we talking about prescription medication? Are we talking about uh, surgery, elective surgery, cosmetic surgery? Are we talking about um, mental health? What are we talking about here? It's, it's a very layered uh, conversation that we face. Another unique challenge for us is that our healthcare system that we have is broken. 
We know that. Hopefully that's not controversial to say. I think only, only the pharmaceutical companies might disagree with me, uh, some of the points. But we, we, so we have to be grateful that we recognize we live in a culture that has some of the most advanced medicine, some of the best training, some of the best research and development. Like, of course, we're grateful for that. We see all that. But also we have to understand we need pricing transparency. Um, we need cheaper, you know, more affordable prescriptions. And the pharmaceutical companies need to be more accountable. Right? I don't think that's controversial to say. I think, I think my, I, I'm hopefully sussing my audience here enough to be like, all right, that, that's okay, that's fair enough to say that. Maybe I'm getting too far ahead here because really the foundation, or the starting point for this topic and looking at the, these issues of an ethic around biology, because we, if, we, if, if our culture is framing as an issue of justice, that it's injustice not to be provided certain services and certain things, if that's an injustice, then we have to ask ourselves what's right and what's wrong, what's moral about this, what's the foundation of this to build a, a Christian ethic out of it. So you have to start with biblical truth. So this passage we looked at today says that God has made us, that he formed our inward parts, that we're made by God. Of course, we see more broadly in Scripture that we would have compassion and to alleviate suffering from people, that Jesus himself made, obviously his teaching was the biggest part of his ministry, but we also see that, that him being a healer was, was pretty up there in terms of like, this is like a big thing that Jesus does. He takes away people's sickness, takes away people's pain. That's why people came to him in droves, is because he relieved them of their pain and obviously spoke uh, the truth to them as well. We see historically out of the Christian faith, you see hospitals emerged directly as a result of kind of Christian ethic and Christian belief. We know that heaven will have no suffering, no pain, no death. So doctors will be out of, out of work in heaven. This, all of these ideas start to form for us some of, some of an idea of, of how we might think about a Christian ethic around these, this topic. But the, found, the, the big, big foundational thing uh, that we, we understand is about the value of life. That's what guides our, our thinking about this topic is the value of life. And this is in the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, very famous Bible verse, it says, you shall not murder, you shall not murder. This is the foundation here. God encoded it in the moral law because people like to murder each other. When you hate somebody, guess what you want to do? You want to kill them. I, I mean, true hate. I'm talking about true hatred here. If you've ever, you know, may, you know, you can dislike someone, but if you've had like rage, rage kind of hatred towards someone, it means you're in danger of like actually killing somebody. And our city knows this well. History knows this well. It's history. We have a world full of goes back to, to Cain and Abel. God says you shall not murder. And the reason the Bible gives us that you shouldn't murder is because every person that's born is not just made by God, but made in God's image. So to take away, unjustly take away somebody's life from them because their life is sacred, it has intrinsic value to it, to take it away from them is an injustice because only God can do that. God determines when life begins and when it ends and human beings have not been given the right unjustly, with some nuance to this we'll talk about next week, but to unjustly take away somebody's life, it doesn't matter your past, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter your gender. You have intrinsic worth because you've been made in the image of God, and you should be respected and treated with respect, even in your worst moments. We should be treated in a certain dignity and intrinsic value that we have, which is why when Christians, when we think about an issue like suicide, for example, very difficult issue, our family, we've had suicide in our family. Obviously, from the emotional fallout of that and the, the pain of, that everyone's left with, we're dealing with that. 
from that perspective, everyone's on the same page, like, this is wrong, you know, this isn't the right thing to be doing. But there's something above that, too, which is this issue that it violates Exodus uh, 20, where it says, God says, you shall not murder. It's self-murder. It's somebody, obviously, you want to have compassion, we understand someone's in a dark place, they've made a bad decision, they've gotten to a really bad, low place, and they made the worst decision you could imagine them. We, we don't blame them for feeling that way, but we understand it's still a violation. It's still, they, they're robbing themselves of the dignity that God's put in them. What a tragedy to lose somebody to lose their own life because they have fallen into self-hatred because they've believed a lie about themselves. You know, this verse 14 says, says in this psalm that we read, Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You and I are wonderful. Wonderful. That's the truth. Wonderful. Life has value because it is wonderful. Not based on what you do, but based on who you are, how, how God has designed you to be. You know, there can be a couple of reactions to this. You know, sometimes, you know, it can make us feel warm and fuzzy inside when someone tells us we're wonderful, right? That can make us feel good about ourselves. But there's a couple of other things that can happen to us. We can sometimes say, well, some of us can think, well, I've done some pretty bad things. Or if you really knew me, I'm not that great. Um, that can be one thing that we can think. The other thing we can think is we kind of get stuck in a theological loop in our minds. of like, but aren't we all sinners? Isn't there total depravity? Aren't we despicable and destined for God's punishment and judgment? And two things can be true at the same time, that God can look at the human race and say, I'm really unhappy with their sin. I'm really unhappy with how they treat each other. I'm really disappointed, and I want to judge and keep them accountable. But all, he can do that and simultaneously say, I still see my image in them and see the value and the sanctity of their life and still can think they're wonderful and worthy of some kind of salvation or redemption, based, but not based on who we are, but based on what God, how God feels about us and His work, His creation of us. Listen, if you're somebody who struggles with or has struggled with anyone online or today with us in person, struggle with suicide, please talk to somebody today. Please talk to somebody today. Don't go another day without getting more help, without getting a breakthrough, without, you know, set your mind on Psalm 139. Set your mind on this truth, the value, the the wonder that, that God finds in you, that even in your worst moments, uh, that you still have dignity and value in God. Now, the same ethic applies, as we just would say about, about suicide. It's not just emotionally terrifying and, and awful, uh, but it's, it's a moral problem with it, but also uh, prematurely taking somebody's life away from them um, through euthanasia is, has the same moral problem. It violates Exodus 20, verse 13, where it says, you shall not murder. God is opposed to murder, to, to the unjust taking of life. There are three main reasons that people tend to give for ending a life prematurely. People will say, well, consider the suffering. Consider that. Or they'll say, um, well, consider the quality of somebody's life. Consider that. Or they'll say, well, the elderly, are, 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 you know, there's a lot of them now, and they're using up resources that need to go towards younger, more healthy uh, people. And that's, that actually can be framed as an issue of justice. It's unjust that these people should be wasting resources when they should be going to more healthy, productive people. Let's go through these one at a time. The argument of suffering. Just put somebody out of their misery. Well, of course, as believers, we want to have compassion. We don't want people to suffer. Who wants someone to suffer? We don't want to prolong suffering. We don't, we don't want to do anything that would make suffering worse. We don't do any of those things. But we've got to remember a few very important things. Suffering in life is unavoidable. You'll suffer when you're young. You'll suffer when you're, when you're a young adult. You'll suffer in your adult years. You'll suffer when you're elderly. Suffering is unavoidable. It's all throughout life. And actually, we're called to face suffering with courage. 
Suffering needs to be faced with courage. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We want to face suffering with, with dignity and strength. But also, for a really long time now, for many, not just with modern-day medicine, but also just in time, years gone past, we've had very powerful um, ways of managing pain and suffering that can, be, that can alleviate people's, um, can manage the, the, the hurts and the pains that they're experiencing and feeling. And because, because of this, because suffering should be faced with dignity and with courage, and because it can, in almost all cases, be managed fairly successfully, um, even though it can diminish the quality of life, which we'll get to in a second, that these two reasons really, I think, knock the legs out of the, the, the argument that someone gives saying, just someone shouldn't suffer. We should just alleviate, we should just end their life because they're suffering. That's not an honorable way to think about treating somebody's, the life that, that God has given them. Now, if somebody is sick or injured to a point where recovery seems impossible, allowing someone to pass away is, I think, merciful and just. But we're called to, but we're called to honor our parents. It says, you know, another commandment, honor your father and mother. I don't think it's very honorable to just say, well, they're in some discomfort, so we should take away their life from them. What about the quality of life? You know, I'm sympathetic to each of these reasons because, you know, in one sense you say, well, you want someone to enjoy their life. You want them to feel productive and feel meaningful. And, you know, if somebody degrades, they might and they lose value, the sense of value of their life, think, yeah, that would be hard, you know. Uh, but what we've got to understand is the value of life is not based upon what somebody does. It's based upon who they become. Just, just like we face suffering with courage and dignity and, and we face it with, with bravery, in the same way, the quality of life, just because somebody's life uh, quality diminishes doesn't mean we should steal their life, the rest of their life from them, but we have to actually understand that God has a purpose for them. Even if, even if some, all somebody can do is lie in bed and pray for, some, pray for people and, and be kind to the people around them that are helping them, send encouraging messages and you know, share scripture with people, if that's all you can do, that's a good life. That has value to it. Obviously, people then get stuck in these loops of these logical things and start thinking about, what if you're a vegetable? Or what if, you know, if you're being artificially kept alive, I think, with, with no room to recover, like, yes, it's merciful, like, that's fine. Let nature take its natural course. But we have to understand that who we become, just because our cognitive abilities may diminish, just because our mobility may diminish, doesn't mean our life should be snatched from us. A child, a newborn baby doesn't have much cognitive understanding of things, not very mobile. We wouldn't take their life away from them. They still have value. What about this last idea about the resources, elderly using up resources? You know, Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. I think it's very immoral for younger generations to look at older generations and say, you know, if I was them, I think I'd rather be euthanized. I think I'd just rather be take just to be finished off early so that I don't have to use up resources. I think that's really a despicable thing. I think there's even a bigger problem with it other than just the moral problem of that. But cultures that legalize this open the door to its abuse and its misuse. So in the Netherlands, there's been really terrible reports of um, large amounts of elderly people being euthanized against their will. So in 2012, it was reported that uh, 4,188 people, elderly people, 
uh, with a combination of set different types of sedatives and a lethal injection of muscle relaxants were euthanized against their will. And the, uh, the international uh, anti-euthanasia um, task force say that that number is underrepresented. There's actually a much larger number than the, the official number uh, that was given. A, a 19, uh, study from 1990 showed that over a thousand doctors in the Netherlands performed euthanasia on people that had not given their permission, uh, had not given explicit permission for that to happen to them, which that year made up about 4% of deaths in, in that country. God, it's, it's, you know, God is against premeditated murder. He's against the unjust taking of somebody's life. Now that leads us to the very sensitive, very challenging topic of abortion. And, you know, as we talk about this, um, most of, the, most of the, 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 the conversation revolves around, you know, when is this alive? Is it just a collection of cells? Or when does this become a person? You know, is it an unborn baby? Or is it something else? Like, what is this? And there's, there's lots of, of conversations around this. But before we get into all that, I just want to say that whenever you talk to any group of people about this subject, it's likely that there are women present who have had abortions, or that you know somebody who's had an abortion, or uh, maybe for the men here, maybe you fathered a child that was then aborted. Or maybe there are people listening who you've pressured somebody into um, an abortion. These are obvious because a lot of times you don't know. You know people, but you don't know about the situation because people don't, people don't want to talk about those, those things, understandably so. So let me just say, because there's, you know, there's, there's 600,000 abortions that happen in our country every year. About 18% of pregnancies uh, in our country end in abortion. It's a, it's, it's a very common thing. Let me just say this. If you disagree with what I'm going to say, you're welcome here. We respect you. We want to have the kind of church where we have different people with different views and we can learn to get along and respect each other. I think that's possible and I want to strive for that. If you are confused about it, you're somebody who's had an abortion or you know somebody or you've pressured somebody or something like that, and you have some kind of regret or just uncertainty about it, you're just not sure about it, I just want to say we're not going to condemn you. You'll only find grace here. And the reason I say that is because I think this topic is greatly misunderstood in our culture, and I think there's a lot of deception that goes on in this area. I think, I think a lot of women are deceived into taking this action without really realizing what's involved and the, the repercussions of it. Because abortion regret is a big thing. It's not talked about uh, that much, but it is a big thing. But I think, I think, you have, I think you, if you have faith in Jesus, you have a hope and a promise. Not just that you'll get to heaven, but that you'll see your child in heaven and what was taken away will be restored only by Jesus. That's the hope that we have. That's why you'll find grace and not condemnation here. Now, the Bible's teaching is against abortion. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the verses that we looked at here um, from Psalm 139, it tells us that God sees our unformed substance and that He's got this, it says, in your book were written every one of them, my, the days, you know, before they were formed for me. So before we existed as a physical creation, we existed in God's mind. We existed in God's mind. That's where it began. It began in God. So that, plus it says that we're knitted together in our mother's womb. God, God is actively building, whenever a woman is pregnant and there's a, a growing life in there, that God himself 
is at work. He's not, it's not a distant process that's just happening automatically. God is, is involved in this work. Those two things alone are enough to go on in terms of building a Christian ethic and Christian understanding of, and then, then concluding what's just and unjust in terms of how you treat uh, the subject matter. But let me add to it, just to really clarify this and really drive this home, Luke chapter 1, verse 44, tells us about John the baptizer. And um, so John the baptizer's mother, Elizabeth, is going to see Mary, um, the mother of Jesus. And this is what's uh, written when they encounter each other. Um, Elizabeth says, she says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, a couple of interesting things about this verse is the word baby. So, so John the baptizer is, is an unborn baby in the womb. And the baby is the same word that's used to describe Jesus when he is after he is born and laid in the manger. So the Bible uses the same word to describe the unborn as the born, all right? So that's the first big clue right there. Uh, the second one is that it says um, that the baby leaped for joy. Now, studies will show that babies in the womb can actually discern the voice of certain adults around them and that they respond to it. And so this is just showing you that that's true, that studies, you know, the more science, actually, the more science has become more, more and more advanced and we can look more into the womb and look at more of the development of the baby, we've learned a heck of a lot about this subject matter, and uh, that's one of the things uh, that we've learned. But also the scripture here assigns personhood. It says that, that the baby leaped for joy. This is a human being that's experiencing an emotion that's alive. Now, let me go through, I think it's important, we don't, you know, we, as a church, we don't talk about abortion that much. We've talked about it a few times over the years, and so we don't, we don't, you know, some churches talk about it more than others. It is an important, it is a really important topic to Christians because of the sacredness of life and because children should be protected. Children are vulnerable and they should be protected. But let me just go through, we don't do it very often, so it's important to like really give this a good go. Let's go through some of the main reasons that people give to say, to justify having an abortion and Let's give a Christian response to them. Let's think through what's a Christian biblical, how do we respond in grace? How do we think this through in grace? If I was counseling somebody thinking this through, I wouldn't approach it this way. Just want to make that point. This would be the conversation would go a little differently. This is obviously a sermon, so it's a little bit different. The first thing, though, that we may hear from somebody is, well, it's not alive. Obviously, what's a Christian response is, well, it's debatable. Obviously, all things, everything's debatable, Right? Um, but that's why people have, you know, that's why people believe in, uh, you know, sometimes people believe in full-term, you know, abortion. They believe in well, third trimester, second trimester, first trimester. People put different um, boundaries on the time period because they're, for the very reason that they're trying to figure out, they're trying to discern when do they think life begins. That's why they put different markers on it. So uh, some people will say, well, you know, uh, experts have said that a baby doesn't feel pain, an unborn baby doesn't feel pain until 27 weeks. So that's it, right? So, but the more study we do, the more um, science looks into this, the, the earliest now that they can detect pain is somewhere between 8 to 12 weeks. It's way earlier than we used to think. People will look at other life, signs of life and say, well, if there's a heartbeat, if you can detect a heartbeat, surely it's a person, surely it's alive. Well, now, because of modern science, you can detect a heartbeat as early as three weeks. Maybe, maybe it's there even earlier, you just can't detect it. But now you can detect it at three weeks weeks. But it's a bigger, you know, so it's debatable. Does it start at conception? I think life does start at conception. I think there's good reasons uh, to believe that. And I think one of the big reasons to believe that is that we're talking about a human here. 
This is not some kind of other life. It's not an ant. It's not a snail. It's not a penguin. It's a human, right? And because of that, it has the potential to become just like me and just like you. And it's, it's, it's an act of injustice to rob it of its future. What about issues of rape and incest? These are horrible things to have to think about. I'm so sorry that hopefully we can leave here and forget about this and just enjoy the 4th of July for the rest of the day. But for right now, we're, 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 we're in the dark places having to think about these horrible things. Um, as it relates to incest, you know, people will sometimes talk about this, like, oh, you know, the incest thing and genetic degradation and things like that. But the problem with that is that that only happens after several generations of interbreeding. So it doesn't really count uh, in this case. Um, but when, as it relates to rape, this is one of the most powerful emotional arguments I've ever heard of that a mother shouldn't be forced to have to look at the, the, the resemblance of her attacker in the face of her child. Maybe you've heard that before. And I'm like, when I heard that, I thought, oh my gosh. Yeah, who am I to force a, a mother to, to, to have to face that? But what is a Christian ethic? What do, how do we think about this? Well, obviously you want to have great compassion about that. But I, I also know this. There are many women, even though they've been taken advantage of and have been in the awful predicament now of being uh, pregnant because of that, that they found the grace. They found the ability to see God's image in that child and to see their own likeness in that child and to um, be able to forgive their attacker and not hold that against uh, their child. So a lot of women can, but what about ones that can't? Well, I, that's where I think adoption is a great option. If you just can't, if somebody just, if a mother just can't get over that, I think adoption is way more preferable than taking the life uh, that shouldn't be taken. What about the thing of, it's my body? What about that? That's a very common one. You hear that all the time, right? It's my body. What's a Christian response to that? Christian response to that is, we're talking about two bodies here. Let's, let's be honest about the conversation. We're talking about two bodies, and they're separate bodies. Yes, we should care about the mother's body and the mother's health and the mother's rights. We should care about that, of course, because that's a body. It's a person. But also, there's another body here that has its own DNA, separate genetic sequence, has its own blood type, has its own fingerprints, maybe has a different hair color, could be a different gender. And it's... It's a separate person. All of, the, all of the rights that we would assign, all the freedoms and, 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 and the choice that we would assign to the mother, that we would say these are really important values that we have, the problem is they can also equally be applied to her daughter. So it actually can be an issue of women's rights as well. A very similar related reason that people will give, or people may say, well, uh, you know, it's not just it's my body, but the government can't tell me what to do with my body. What's a Christian response to this? How do we think about this one? Well, the government actually does have power over our bodies, actually. The government's role, the big purpose of the government is to protect its citizens, to give safety and security to its citizens. There are other things it can do, but that's the biggest one that it should do. And, you know, governments, if we commit crimes, they put us in handcuffs. They put us in jail. They put us in prison. Um, they restrict the use of certain substances. They restrict travel at different times. The government has the power over our bodies when it relates to issues of morality. And so if this is a if this is alive, this is a human being, the government has a responsibility to protect it, even if it means protecting it from its own mother. What about the argument of I'm just not ready or I'm not capable of caring for this child? I really sympathize with this, especially you think of a younger teenage girl who gets pregnant and you think, yeah, this is you know this is tough. This is not an easy one. 
But I also know this. Yes, it means that person's life is going to look quite different, but I know that people that don't feel, you know, no one's ready. No one's ready to have a baby, ever. No one. People have great ability to adapt to their circumstances and to rise to very difficult, very difficult circumstances. And yes, their life's going to look different. Yes, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. But um, to say I'm not ready, no, actually, you, you could become ready. Pretty, you would become ready pretty quickly. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a young teenager when she was pregnant and she became ready. Now, I will say, if someone's, if someone's not, cap- there's an issue of capability, there's mental health or cognitive issues, or maybe the mother is at risk of homelessness, or there's something like major like that, again, that's where I would say that adoption is, a re- is way more preferable as an option than taking the life of the child away. Then you have things like birth defects, right? People say, well, you know, this kid's going to suffer, they're going to have quality, bad quality of life. And the tragedy of that is that doctors can be wrong, Sometimes we've all heard this, right? People, <laughs> doctors say, this kid's never going to make it, or they're going to be like this, and then they're wrong. You think, man, we could have you know, ended that kid's life. God can heal. Medical science is getting better and better. There's more and more treatments and, and responses and help to, to get people with disabilities. Just because someone has a disability doesn't give anyone the right to take that person's life from them. Then lastly, the very last one I'll mention is is, the, is, is the, the reasoning, which again, sympathetic towards, you know, that, well, women will do it anyway. Some people will just do it anyway, and, and if it happens, it'll be back alley, it'll be kind of a botched thing, it'll be hazardous, ter- terrible for, for the mother. A couple of thoughts on this. In the case where abortion is unavoidable, to, I think everyone, everyone agrees that if the mother's life is at risk, everyone agrees on this, this is the funny thing is, everyone agrees on this, if the mother's life is at risk, Abortion is one of those awful things that might have to happen. Everyone agrees on that, all right? Maybe there's one or two people in the world that don't agree on that, but no one, no one listens to them. There, for that, there will always be safe medical availability to make that happen, all right, to, to perform that procedure. That will, so that will always be safe. But in all other situations where I think it is immoral to do it, here's what we can't do is we can't, legalize something that's immoral just to make something that is immoral less hazardous. I'll say it again in case you didn't catch it. We can't legalize something that is immoral to make something that is immoral less hazardous. The issue isn't the hazardous nature of it. The issue is the morality of it. Because what we're saying is we're saying we want to make it less hazardous for the mother, but legalizing death for an innocent child. It's extremely hazardous for them. A medical professor, in studying medicine with his students, gave them a scenario, a real scenario, and asked them what their thoughts were on this particular case study, and he set it up like this. He said, the father had syphilis, the mother had tuberculosis. Of the first four children in the family, the first was blind, the second died, the third was deaf and dumb, and the fourth had tuberculosis. What would you recommend now that the mother is now pregnant with the fifth? to this classroom. One student pipes up and says, I would recommend an abortion. And the medical uh, professor said, congratulations, you just killed Beethoven. If you're somebody who is begrudgingly for abortion, or even just, you're just totally okay with it, let me ask two things, because it's an issue of life or death. All the children in the world and all the future children in the world, you owe it to them to do a couple of things just to make absolutely certain that you can stand on your 
moral opinion on this. Firstly, look up on YouTube, look up interviews and uh, talks by medical professionals who used to perform abortions but who have stopped doing it because their conscience couldn't handle it anymore. And listen to what they say. Listen to the brutality of it. Listen to the change that they went through after many years of performing uh, these procedures and how they got to a point where they couldn't justify it any longer and they were convicted of it. Look up, there's plenty of interviews on YouTube. You can just listen to it. You don't even have to look at any horrible pictures or anything. You can just listen to that. Now, if that's not enough, then I would say suggest a second step, which is to actually look at pictures and video of it. I can't imagine anyone with a good heart that could look at this and say, it's ethical, unless in the most awful situation where the mother's life, because you're pitting life against life. What do you do when you pit life against life and the mother's life is at risk? It's like a terrible scenario that no one wants to be in. No one wants to be in that situation, but you might find yourself in that situation, potentially. But God has not given parents the right to take away the life of their child. You can't transfer the guilt or the sin of the parent onto the child. It's not their burden, the child's burden to bear. Abortion flies under all kind of labels, doesn't it? Reproductive rights, planned parenthood, women's health, um, uh, reproductive, uh, uh, women's reproductive uh, rights, different, different, you know, reproductive justice is another one I was thinking of, or just healthcare. Sometimes it's just called healthcare. In in the case where it might be moral, it, it might be some of those things, but really, it's not those things. I think we. Sh- some of, those termino- some of that terminology should be a massive clue to us that we're trying to find words to take away the horror of the immorality that we're talking about here because we're trying to frame it in a way that makes it sound more positive. And that should be a clue to us that there's something really, really messed up about that. Is healthcare a human right? Well, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to actually, it's, it's a complicated issue to think about. My heart says, man, I want everyone to get help. I want everyone to, to, to get services and um, to get the health they need. But obviously Christians will say, well, if, if abortion is, is legal, then no, I don't want to be paying for that. Many Christians will say that. You know, that, that, that shouldn't be somebody's right to, to use it in that way. So, so the definition of, of what are you talking about in providing care for somebody is a big topic of, of debate. It's very difficult to work out. I think the Christian heart would be to say we want everyone to be cared for. And interestingly, many people don't know this in our country, um, if you go to the emergency room, you don't have health care, they have to treat you. They cannot turn you away. They have to treat you. So we already have that in terms of emergency care. That, that's a real thing already in our country. And that's, I think that speaks to the kind of the compassionate heart that we, that we do have uh, in, in, our, in our country. I think that's uh, a good thing. It's something to celebrate that. But my head has all these annoying questions in it. There's a difference between the head and the heart. My head has all these annoying questions, like, well, what, what does the Bible say? What's ethical? What's practical? What's just? What does the Bible say about rights? Do you know what the Bible says about rights? Have you ever done a Bible study on rights? You know, the Bible hardly talks about it. A couple of times, a couple of times it mentions rights. You know, we're, so, we're, we're a culture that feels so entitled to things. It's my right. You get rights from responsibilities. It's the only way that you actually can find a theological grounding for rights is that you have, you owe people things, you have responsibilities to people, and so if you reverse engineer that, then people have an obligation to receive it from you. That's how you get rights. And so all the conversation about rights is about what I should get and what I should have given to me, where the Christian response is, what's my responsibility? What has God called me to do? So 
I'm not gonna, I can't really lay out for you a very clear or well-articulated answer to, is healthcare a human right? It's too complicated, I don't have the time for it, it's giving me a headache. I need, a, need some medicine to deal with my headache. Need some healthcare. But here's what I will say. I'll say that we have some big responsibilities. We have a responsibility to speak the truth about the value of human life. Those who might be in a situation where they might make a terrible decision that they might regret, to actually be bold enough in love and grace to, to share with them the truth. But also to sponsor children who are orphaned or who are put up for adoption, but also maybe God's calling us to adopt. Maybe God's put adoption on your heart. It's easy to talk about these as abstract concepts or what's the right answer and to miss what does God want me to do? How can I be part of the solution? How can I care for the vulnerable? How can I care for those who have been in terrible, situ you know, in terrible dire situations of no fault of their own? How can I alleviate that suffering? How can I be somebody to bring that? That's justice. That's mercy. That's what God's called us to do. As it relates to our healthcare system, it's got to change. We need changes. Some, there, are some, there are unjust things that happen in our healthcare system. There are certain stories you read in the news, certain things you hear about, and you say, that is injustice. That is awful, and it has to change. Maybe you can stand against that. Maybe you can fight that somehow. I'm a pastor, so I have no idea how to do that. But maybe other people can figure out how to fight those things. But there are also, there's a lot of good people in our healthcare system, aren't there? A lot of good people, frontline workers, people doing incredible work, people with great compassion, just as we honor Jesus as a healer, we've got to honor the healers of our day and age who provide amazing care uh, that we, I'm sure many of us have experienced very uh, kind uh, uh, care from all kinds of medical providers. But here's the biggest thing, the greatest thing that we get our ethic from, of ethics of biology, ethics of, of health, all these topics of the value of life is, is this, is that God became a man. We're not just made in God's image, but there's another level to it. So we, yes, we, we reflect, the divine, reflect the divine brilliance of God, but also this, God wanted a relationship with us so much that he became one of us. Now, that just ups the game in terms of the value and the dignity that we have. Jesus became a human. He existed before, and he was knitted. He was also knitted together in his mother's womb. He also, also Jesus resisted suicide. He was tempted to throw himself off of a high point out of despair, out of proving you know, your life is valuable. Throw yourself off, commit, attempt to suicide, and he resisted that temptation. Jesus treated the, the children and the elderly with such value and such concern and love. He laid down his rights. He didn't say he was entitled to his rights. He laid down his rights, and he was unjustly murdered for our sin in our place. But it was an act of self-sacrifice because he could have stopped it. He had the power to stop it. He let them do it to him. So it was an act of self-sacrifice to take away our sin. I know this is a heavy topic. I know this is, can touch some real deep things for, for people, especially anyone who's been involved in any of these issues I've talked about. I just want you to know today only Jesus can heal the pain that we have and give us the hope that we need because the world is a dark place. It's a terrible, awful place. And we don't respond to it with more darkness. We respond to it with more light, the light of the truth of Jesus. So let's sing. Let's worship. Let's have the band come up. Let's respond to Jesus today. If you want to follow Jesus for the first time, 
Come into his family, repent, confess your wrongdoing. Come into Jesus' family today. If you want to get prayer today, if you, um, if you want to get more involved at Trinity, you want to take a next step, whatever it is you want to do, reach out to us. And the way to do that is, uh, like Ra- uh, Raquel talked about in announcements, text the word enjoy to 94000, and it will give you a menu, and you can respond to that and tell us uh, if you need prayer, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to get more involved, whatever it is today. Let me encourage you, God's grace is for you. He can cover up all of our past mistakes and redeem all of the faults that we've had. Only He can do it. Let's trust in His work and His sacrifice today.